Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. We've all had the experience of trying to use a piece of software, a library, API, or a database, only to have it fail miserably because something changed in a recent update. Not only are such changes disruptive because they often require rewrites, they can leave us looking for an alternative. In this episode, we're going to discuss some strategies you can use to help with backward compatibility in the software you write, as well as some practices you can use to ensure you don't lose users or that you lose fewer users when you write a upgrade to your software. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, I wouldn't say I've been fighting. I've been working on the new website, which I do report to you. I know you know this, but uh, telling this to the listeners, I kind of report into you every week before we record to show you the progress. And the trick there is just to force me to have some progress to show mm-hmm. because it's easy to get into like the, the deep engineering that doesn't actually move the needle. And so that forces me not to do that. So I had some more fun with JavaScript dates and times. It's still <laughs> awful. I did pull Moment in, and then I went to Moment's site today uh, to look for something, and it turns out they consider it legacy now. That's their status message. Hey, this is legacy. Like, it doesn't work with newer stuff. So it's like, crap. <laughs> so... That's a bit annoying. I also discovered a really cute trick in VS Code. So if you do code dash R and then the name of the file you want to open, it'll open it in the current instance in the terminal, Hmm. in VS Code's terminal, which means you could have an NPM script that does some stuff, dumps a file, and then opens it in the editor, which gives me some ideas that I haven't completely thought through, but I'm like, ooh, I really like that. So I just want to throw that out there for everybody else. So how about you? Well, uh, this past Saturday, I got to be production lead at church. We do a Saturday morning prayer service, and our team lead for the tech team, production team, was speaking. So I was assigned production lead duties, which was really cool. What that meant is I was in charge of the tech team and calling the shots or being the director for the cameras for online production. Really cool. She trusted me with it because becoming a musician, I'm learning the dynamics of the songs and I'm learning the worship songs. So I know where they're going and I'm not going to be, you know, getting a big wide shot when it's an intimate moment in the song. And I'm not going to be like super close up would look better to get a big wide shot because, you know, a lot of stuff's going on. I'm just sort of learning that and understanding that. So I got to, uh, I had to apply it basically. There's a lot more to the role than just directing the cameras, but it was a lot of fun. Apparently I did a, Good job because I'm scheduled to do it again in a few weeks, this time on a Wednesday night, which is really awesome because that is a completely online service. So it's not, oh, most people are here in person and a handful are watching online. It's everybody's watching online. That's really cool for me. I mean, that that's a lot of trust 
that they're putting in me. And I'm really excited about it. I've already, I found that out, what, about an hour and a half before we hopped on the call. And I've already looked up the songs and stuff because, you know, I had to find out what I was dealing with. <laughs> nice. In other really good news, my hand is doing a lot better. Yeah, I'm still putting band-aids over the blisters when I go out or uh, when I'm sleeping, but I leave them off most of the day. I put uh, still putting burn cream on it, not even taking ibuprofen uh, anymore for painkillers. Uh, my typing speed has picked back up, and the pair programming session today went uh, a lot smoother with uh, me not being medicated. <laughs> yeah. I find that it actually makes programming, you know, pair programming sessions go more smoothly. Because <laughs> the other person well, like, you know what? It I'll was. <laughs> it was interesting because we finished up most of the programming because we're, we're building this out together. I'm learning the UI and he's learning the API. And so we finished like the one piece that we were working on to get like the initial, hey, here's how to do things. And uh, from the API standpoint, last week, except we needed to add logging. And I purposely did this. I waited for it so that he could see, all right, here's what it's like to build something out without logging. And here's what it's like to go into something that already exists and add the logging to it. So today was adding logging. But he came in thinking, oh, hey, we finished the API. We're going to start on the the UI. So you're going to do all the work today. And I'm like, uh, not according to the schedule. Yeah, buddy. He's like, oh, man, <laughs> I got my weeks off. <laughs> uh, nice. Uh, which means next week I'm going to have a lot of work to do. So um, you'll be healed. That's true. That's true. Other really good news. We have two new patrons. Yeah, so we want to give a big shout out and a thank you to Matt Wolf and Oscar S. Uh, both of them signed up, I think, this past Sunday. Is that correct? Mm. Yeah, I believe it was Sunday. At least that's when I got the notification. Yeah, of course, I told you it was today, this morning, because I didn't even look at my <laughs> Outlook. Like, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> yeah, guys, so just we want to thank you for helping us uh, to be able to pay for the podcast and to reach our goals uh, with this. Y'all, you can take your financial confidence to the next level. Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner and financial coach serving tech professionals with his company, Level Up Financial Planning, virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Level Up Financial Planning, like the Complete Developer Podcast, believes in the importance of having a real plan and taking action so that you can live your best life. A lot of times, people think that they are too young or don't have enough investments to work with a financial planner. But Level Up's unique pricing model allows you to pay monthly and without requiring investment management. Why wait to feel confident about your financial decisions? Best of all, Lucas Casares and Level Up Financial Planning is a fiduciary for his clients which requires him to act in his client's best interest. Uh, he's not a salesman, and you only pay as long as you're getting value and stop paying when you're not getting that value. Find more fun resources and learn more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. By its nature, software is subject to frequent change. 
in general, software isn't particularly static and can be rapidly reconfigured or adapt quickly to changing circumstances in the market, security landscape, and whatever industry it serves. This is one of the main reasons that software is eating the world right now. It's because of its rapid ability to change. However, this adaptability can also be a weakness if you're not careful. Most software these days includes integration points of various sorts so that other software can work with it. If the people integrating with your software happen to be paying you, then it's crucial that you control the way your software interfaces change so that you disrupt your users as little as possible. To make things more complicated, not everyone always interacts with your software in the way that you expect. You might find, for instance, that people directly interact with the underlying database, use web automation to push data into your system, or even automate a Windows or desktop user interface as a sort of backdoor integration method. If you want to try and ensure backward compatibility to the degree possible, there are a few practices you can use that will make this easier. While we are planning to have more episodes discussing backward compatibility in various contexts, there are some general rules that you should follow regardless of how other software is interacting with yours. In particular, these rules are focused around the idea of limiting disruptions to your users while still allowing as much flexibility as possible for your development team. Disrupting your users a little bit will irritate them, while disrupting them a lot makes it more likely they will flee your platform for that of your competitors. You know, it's it's really kind of funny and yeah. interesting that that Will wrote this because we're in the planning stages to rewrite a service that we have. And, you know, our customers are our own developers because it's an internal service that we use. But I'm going to be the primary developer writing it. One of the big things that I told them I would do is make it backward compatible so that we wouldn't have to go and update every single application that's using it when we roll it out. Yeah, that's, I think that's something that we're all dealing with right now. It just, it seems like that's kind of in the air that everybody is updating major apps. And mm -hmm. I think it's because of the wave of new developers that came in a few years ago. You know, people built a whole bunch of new stuff and the new stuff was successful. And all of a sudden now they're like, hey, we've got other things we got to do with this. Now we got to fix it. And a lot of folks are really hitting some pain points on that, I think, that are a little bit difficult to deal with, <laughs> to put it mildly. Well, there's that. And then there's Microsoft making like massive changes. Like one thing that I've run into recently is system.web.services is not in yeah. .NET Core and it's not going to be in .NET 5. So it's it's deprecated after four. Yeah, the, the one I've run into is... So back to making things backward compatible, which is something Microsoft used to be really good about. And I get they have to like, you know, when you go into the, the Apple and Mac world, it's the opposite mentality. You change or you get left behind mentality. Right. It's the pirate code. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And now that, you know, Microsoft is trying to keep up with that. And so instead of backward compatibility, they just left the compatibility part out. And so just backward. The first 
suggestion that we have here is to use semantic versioning religiously. If you can't communicate version changes in a clear and widely understood manner, then everything else we are about to suggest is going to be impossible. Semantic versioning is a great way to do this. Yeah. With the simver or semantic versioning, versions are expressed in three segments. You have your major version, your minor version, and then your patch. I've also, I've seen like build, that kind of stuff. What's interesting is when I first started in this, this was like, I didn't know there was another way of doing this. Like, I didn't know people didn't do this because, you know, I was around Will and he forced it on me. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I don't want to deal with the crap that happens when it's not done. Yeah. Like, that's completely intolerable for me. Yeah. But yeah, people do weird things with their versioning. Like, oh, well, we're, you know, it's a patch version increment and they break everything. It's because somebody, usually some marketing person is like, oh, well, we don't want to say this is a new version because it's not a major change as far as the UI, but you've broken all kinds of stuff on the back end and people need to be aware of it. And there's disconnect between development versions and just app versions. I think a lot of times that people, they lean the wrong way on a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's very painful. So I guess let's get into a little bit about what Simver does. I mean, we we have a podcast episode that really gets into this, but just the overall uh, parts of this. The major version numbers are incremented when you make a breaking change. Or, I mean, it may not be a breaking change. It may just be a major change, a massive update. For example, Reaper made some big changes to the the user interface. I was actually messaging our friend Jason, who trained me on Reaper. I was like, I got version 6.13, and now I can't find how to do all these things that I used to be able to do with like the click of a button. And he's like, oh, I haven't updated yet, so can't help you. <laughs> now, he was, he was more helpful than that, but... <laughs> <laughs> He hadn't updated yet, so he was like, I don't I don't know how to help you there. But yeah, that you know I don't think they broke anything with that change, but they other than the user experience, I guess that was breaking. Well, and the thing is if you'd scripted the UI, they broke all your integration points there too. Mm-hmm. Right. So a major UI change, if it's something that like a plugin model might be using and poking around with that is a breaking change for their integration partners. Yeah. Of course, if they're, you know, if you're at the point where it's like UI automation to use a plugin, you've got other problems. <laughs> no. Minor versions are incremented when you add functionality in a backwards compatible way. Right. So this is typically just straight up adding something and not altering something that people are already using. Mm-hmm is the general way that I see this happen or adding data to the payload that comes back, but not changing what's required coming in is typically the use case for this type of change. No. Now, patch versions are incremented when you add bug fixes in a backwards compatible manner. So it's not, 
hey, we made a major change to this thing. It's more like, hey, we made it actually work like it's supposed to. And we're incrementing the version so you can tell if they're patched or not. Mm-hmm. Simver is a great way to communicate changes to your users in a way that makes it easy for them to see how much trouble an upgrade will be. And this doesn't mean that you don't need release notes because, you know, you're going to want to tell them what changed, even if it's a bug fix, because honestly, Will and I have both seen people use bugs, like expect that as normal functionality in software. Uh huh. And you fix that, and all of a sudden they um, can't. I've actually used bugs as. Yeah. You remember back in the days when people had AOL Instant Messenger, and we were totally dating ourselves by bringing up this example. But the screen there was HTML and had an HTML engine inside of it. I don't know what the engine was, but if you gave it a P tag that had a font specified and the font's name was more than 255 characters in length, it would cause the machine at the other end to reboot. And I may have used that to reboot servers remotely a few times. (laughs) (laughs) So people do things that you don't necessarily see coming and a reasonable person would not expect. Yeah. So put stuff in the patch notes. In a less weird, extreme way, I have seen people like non development users like just business users using a uh, a bug to is basically with a uh, search functionality if you didn't put any criteria in and just hit enter it brought everything back and yeah they were they were basically wanting to get a csv of everything so they could throw it into excel and this was like, you know, inside the business user. So they could like do reports based on it. And they were like ad hoc reports kind of thing. And yeah, it was just like, we fixed that bug because we're like, oh my goodness, this is what's, what's causing all these problems. Oh, well, let's fix that. We ended up actually getting a feature request to put in the ability to pull that CSV and we could do it in a way that wasn't crazy. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good way to approach that, right? Because you found out by breaking something that people were trying to get functionality out of your system that you might not have known about otherwise. Now, another thing you need to make sure and do when when you do an upgrade is to keep on top of your own dependencies leading up to that upgrade, especially, but you really should be doing this anyway. Nothing will force you to implement breaking changes on your users faster than having one of your dependencies force you to make sweeping changes in your own code. While some vendors really seem to love to make really quick sweeping changes that cause major problems among their users, most vendors at least attempt to handle breaking changes in a sensible manner and warn you in advance. Um, If they don't, you should reconsider your integration with them because they're hurting your users in a way that causes you to catch the blame. Yeah. Try to find out where upcoming changes are announced for your dependencies and get on their mailing list. You can sign up for their RSS feed. You know, most of them have a MailChimp account, to be honest with you. (laughs) Seems to be the the go-to for everyone I've noticed. 
you know, it's also a good idea to take an inventory of the dependencies of your application. Oh man, this is hilarious. I was just having this conversation at work because we're having to, uh, we're moving something up into production. And I was like, oh, hey, before we do that, we made changes in this one service. We're going to have to push that up, but we should test to make sure the other applications using that service aren't broken by those changes. It was non-breaking changes. It was adding stuff to it. So it'd be a minor version. But yeah, I was like, we need to test to make sure nothing else is going to break. And then we had a long email chain about which applications are using it. Even though we had a list like in the database of the applications using it, there's like, oh, well, that application isn't using it anymore, so it just didn't get removed, or that application isn't being used anymore, it got replaced by this one, and like that, you got to keep that list up to date is what I'm getting at, because it, yeah. it took about half a day for us to figure out between the lead DBA, the lead API developer, and myself, which applications were affected. <laughs> well, and it's also really painful with like Node because, you know, the thing is with, you know, like with a Node app, you bring in crap all the time. Mm-hmm. And and so you'll have packages sitting there that may have vulnerabilities, may need updates, and it may have been something you haven't used for a year. Yeah. .NET is a little bit better about that, but it's also it feels like when there is a .NET package update that there tend to be more big breaking changes mm-hmm. for whatever reason than I experience in Node. And so like, if you don't know, if you don't know who can change something and break your app, you have a real problem. And if you don't know who you can change stuff on and break, you also have a big problem. Yeah. That makes sense. So the next thing, to keep in mind is to keep on top of relevant legal requirements that impact your software, its dependencies, and that of your clients. You know, regulatory changes are usually slow, but they are inevitable. They can force the dependencies of your application to make breaking changes quickly with deadlines that can't be negotiated. Especially if it's like legislated deadline. Yeah. My, and especially if it's privacy stuff or, you know, the one that got a whole bunch of people, was it last year or the year before, was GDPR. Yeah. You know, people weren't prepared. The libraries that were they were using were not prepared. And so, like, you know, if you're relying on some third-party library to handle that stuff for you and they don't get ready until a month before, guess what? You've got a month to fix it. Mm-hmm. Uh, another thing could also be like if you are working in the public sector or a um, nonprofit and you get certain funding right and you have to you have to make changes quickly based on all right you've got you know this amount of time to get this these changes made it's a drop everything and do it you also want to keep an eye on the news especially if your application is particularly subject to certain regulatory bodies, like things with HIPAA, with medical is definitely a big thing. They love to push changes out. Now, thankfully, the medical industry is so slow moving that even if there is a change, you know, HCA has got you covered because they can't shift everything in six months or a year for that matter. 
So you're probably going to be okay. But there's other industries that are a little bit more nimble that are getting heavily regulated. And so you do need to pay attention to that. If you don't have any major regulations on your sector, whatever it happens to be, then you need to be watching for people who want to regulate it because they are coming. Yeah. Now, once a new law is passed, make sure that your legal team, not development, not management, not marketing, yeah, tell you what changes have to be made and tell you as soon as possible. I have actually seen and I have I've been part of as a, a consultant come in to to help with this where they were given three years to make this change and the development team wasn't told about it until about eight months out. Yep. And it's like, oh, hey, we need you to do this in the next eight months. And they're like, uh, that's going to take years to do. And it turned out that they were given years, yeah. but they just waited on it because they wanted to focus on other things. And things were built during that time based on the other way. So, yeah. You really want to prioritize getting those changes in place before the deadline so you have plenty of time to deal with the fallout before you start accumulating fines. Yeah, and also understand that a lot of your clients and the systems that you're dependent on may also be under changing regulatory pressure, and it may not be the same as yours. So, for instance, if you write software in Tennessee, does certain things, it's completely fine privacy-wise as far as our state's laws, but you might be subject to, say, the laws of, I don't know, Denmark, depending on where your software is in use. And those may be at cross-purposes. It's entirely possible to get a situation developed where if you write software for one area, it can't work in another one because of the laws. Yeah, that is very, very possible. And a really tricky thing legally with web development and things like PSAs. Accessibility. Oh, accessibility. Oh, and yeah, accessibility is a thing uh, with that too, but I'm just meant like with like web apps that act like native apps on your phone. Yeah, that can be, can be really tricky with that kind of stuff. Yeah, most of the big uh, social media companies have a lot of problems with yeah. this. And the thing about it is, is they're in a situation now where they attempt to react to a problem and they create another one in a different place. Like they're just pushing on different parts of the balloon and trying to keep it from popping. Yeah, that's true. And that's all they get to do. Yeah. Next, you want to communicate regularly with users who are integrating with your software. Yeah. You know, so you don't want to be in a situation where you can't contact the user of your software when a breaking change is coming. Uh, you need to make sure that your company can get a hold of people when something changes. Um, don't assume this is an if something changes. This is a when things change. That's software. Yeah. And changes should be communicated as early as you possibly can so that your clients can actually plan ahead. You need to remember that integration with your software is probably not their highest priority, but simply a single feature out of a bunch that they have. More than likely, like you're not the only thing. It's not like they wrote a QuickBooks plugin in your QuickBooks. Mm -hmm. 
their software does something else and that's how they get people on. Your integration point's just another selling point. And if you act like it's the only thing that's important, you're going to alienate your vendors. Mm-hmm. You also want to make sure to have a focus group of select clients whom you can test upcoming integration points and the challenges. I remember with uh, one of the very first thing I worked on at my job, it was taking a paper application and putting it online, something that they, this whole set of customers had not ever had. And so they picked their largest one, who was the most tech savvy, and had a few people from there testing it in our user environment, like UAT. So that was really cool. You know, this is typically considered to be the responsibility of product owners or management. If you don't have it, you really need to push to make this happen. Because as a developer, this can keep you from making changes that drastically break someone else's workflow. Yeah, and you also need a good way to correlate a particular set of contact information with an API key or whatever you're using to authenticate these people. Mm -hmm. So don't give them an API key that you can't tie to something because when they start doing something weird, you need to be able to get a hold of them. And as the deadline for converting comes closer, you can actually warn the companies that haven't moved over if you have that stuff that you can tie together. If you don't, users are going to get a really nasty surprise when you turn off the deprecated version of the system at the cutoff time oh, because yeah. they didn't know it was coming. Mm-hmm. We've all experienced that where all of a sudden something doesn't work and you go and you find out, oh, they deprecated this. And yeah, so don't deprecate on your users. <laughs> yeah, oh my yeah, I made the joke. I knew it was coming in this episode somewhere. I just didn't know where it would be in the episode. Well, now you know how the users feel. (laughs) Wow. So have a means of collecting and reporting on usage statistics for any integration points that you make available. At the very least, you need to know how many clients use a particular endpoint broken down to the lowest level that you can get and how frequently they use it. You may find that some integration points in your software are rarely used at all. And if this is the case, there is less concern about uh, messing with that endpoint. I actually found this out working with... Actually, I I found the opposite out, to be honest with you. It was an endpoint that I hadn't used on this thing that I'm rewriting. Like None of the line of business software that I had use that consumed it ever talked to this endpoint. So I was like, all right, well, this must just be something that was written and just never removed. And then I found out getting into it, oh, no, there's like these whole other set of apps that use it. I'm like, why are you doing that? It's so much easier to do it this way. But, you know, that's how it was built. Probably before what I was doing was added on. Like, I think they they added that part on to make it easier. And I just only saw the easier way. So, well, yeah. And that's why you want those usage statistics, right? Because you might find that one or two clients account for all the usage of an endpoint and nobody else touches it. Yeah. And if this is the case, you may need to get more information about why they're actually using it and other people aren't. It could be that you can easily convince them to move to your new implementation if it offers advantages that the old one didn't. Or you may find that, hey, like they just need to be told, don't 
do that. Like there's a way easier way, you know, because <laughs> you'll see people do stuff like they'll talk to an API and they'll get all this data back and they'll put it into queues and they do all this stuff and they're dumping out a CSV and you're like, there's a download button, bro. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it wasn't there two years ago when they came up with this, you know, yeah. mousetrap game that they got set up, but mm-hmm. it's there now. And so you'll see that kind of stuff and you're like, dude, why, why don't you do it this other way? It won't hurt so much. Yeah. Usage statistics are also very handy when you get close to turning off the old implementation. That's something that with this new thing that I'm going to be building, I am like, oh, (laughs) about, but, you know, I know it's coming so that you can estimate how many problems you're going to create by turning something off. Uh, It also helps you to track adoption of your newer integration points. Yeah, and it helps you plan your vacation, right? So, like, if you know that it's going to be a big problem, out of the country. (laughs) (laughs) You know, going to an Amish bed and breakfast for two weeks. (laughs) Yep. No electronics. There you go. There you go. So I've I've worked with some people that I think that that was kind of a thing. mm. (laughs) Because they were always gone when stuff broke. You're like, "Mm, I wonder. Yeah. So... The next one, you want to push users away from the pit of failure. Yeah, so try to keep your users from doing things that are fragile by nature, unless you want to support those approaches intentionally from now on. For instance, if you don't want users doing janky integrations directly with your table structure in the database, find another way to make similar functionality available to them and make it discoverable. And that may be as simple as, hey, here's a stored proc that does the thing and we documented that. Yeah. But it may be, here's an API endpoint, here's a whole process flow, here's an app that does it and you get all the bells and whistles and you don't have to write any code. Well, on that same line of thought, you know, provide SDKs, software development kits, for working with your system that cover expected use cases so that users don't try and probably fail about half the time to roll out their own. You know, yeah, I'm honestly a little like fuzzy sometimes when it comes to SDKs. Me too. It's because a lot of companies don't do a good job of it. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's the trick, right? If somebody writes a really clean SDK that works really well, then great. But one thing I've noticed is, for instance, they've got an API that they wrote in. Python. They run on Linux. When those people write a .NET wrapper for that thing, it tends to have some very strange characteristics for what I would expect out of a .NET library. Yeah. Oh, no, that, that makes sense. I, I'm, I've run into that with Java developers. Like, this thing that I'm working on right now, their .NET SDK was written... Like the sample code was written in 2009. Oh, yeah. And it's probably lots of XSDs or something like here's a data set, <laughs> you know, serialized in like the worst way possible. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, I mean, it's and it's it's in win forms. Yep. And I'm writing I'm writing a .NET Core ASP.NET app. And I'm like, there's nothing, nothing for me out there. I'm like, I can't even use like I can't even use .NET Core. 
Right. So like because you can't get the type data sets yeah. probably. And so what I'm what I'm having to do is that piece. I'm putting a .NET framework project in there with a .NET Core wrapper, so that as soon as there is a way to do it in .NET Core, we can pull that out and put it in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and speaking of pulling stuff out, make sure your libraries are available through standard package managers for the various languages. Don't make people download from your site. Like, oh, yeah. give them an update mechanism. This way you can push updates that actually mark items as deprecated and surface new ones well in advance of the cutoff. This makes it easier for consumers to gradually wean themselves off your old API instead of it being a shock mm-hmm. when all this stuff has to get done. Yeah. You want to also provide useful error messages. Oh my goodness, this is so important. And other feedback and provide errors. When there's an error, don't, if it's an HTTP call to your service, don't return a 200 with the error message instead of what's supposed to come back. Like actually return an error. Oh, I just, that's one of my pet peeves. Yeah. I'm just, you know, and the thing is I've written stuff like that years ago. And, you know, before the whole rest thing was really as well documented and understood as it is now. So I get it. You know, somebody could possibly still not know that. But yeah, you got to get that stuff right. Another thing you need to do is consider documentation as a first class citizen and ship it along with the version of any integration points that you have. So if you're waiting to start writing documentation until your new version is complete or almost done, then you can expect significant delays in getting people to move to the new version of your software because they don't know what to do. Yeah. Developer documentation should generally be written by people with development experience and should not lag behind the released version of the code. (laughs) I'm sorry, lag. Y'all, all all right, uh, we're going to keep this in the episode, but Will and I are having a little bit of a lag issue, so we're we're talking over each other. So if we if we sound like we're chuckling a little bit when we're saying something, it's because we both tried to say something at the same time and we had to edit that out. But yeah, we sounded like Balmer a minute ago because like developers, developers, developers. <laughs> it was really really bad. You know, felt like throwing a chair. Um, you know, just to get the spirit of the thing. Yeah. So if your docs are behind the release version of your code, it's extremely frustrating and it's going to make people not want to move because you're creating risk. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what I was talking about just a moment ago. But I'm like, I am... You know what I did? They told me I was going to be assigned another senior developer to work with me on this project. And he's the one who... I think I've told you guys about his attitude He's been a professional software developer since Will and I were in high school. And he's close to retirement. His attitude is like he gets excited about learning new stuff. He started learning .NET Core and he's like, when do I get to do something in this? This is so cool. I'm like, dude, never even had to learn .NET Core. He's retiring in a few years. He could have gotten away with maintaining older systems. Easy job doing that kind of stuff. No, he is so excited. Like, I want that attitude when I've been doing that this as long as he has. But because all this stuff was written in things, like, I think I maybe did one or two things in WinForms when I was apprenticing with you. And that's it. 
And most of those were that dadgum calculator. Yeah, well, yeah. One of them was, but yeah. He worked in that for years. And so I was like, hey, can you take a look at this? I'm struggling to figure it out. I'll read through the documentation. You take a look at this. And actually, later this week, we have, we're calling it a pair programming session, but it's basically a comparing notes session on, hey, here's what I learned. What did you figure out from the sample code? How do we make this work? And because the documentation is so ancient for .NET, if we were Java developers, we'd be fine. Yeah. <laughs> the thing about your documentation, too, is it needs to be subject to things like pull request style revisions. I mean, that's what an editor actually is, is just a pull request for a document. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you also need to have testing. So actually have somebody go through the directions who's not you and see if they can do it. Because mm-hmm. they can't, your directions don't work. That's a good idea. You will be shocked at the stuff people do and the assumptions they bring to it that you don't. Yeah. Um, if you've ever written technical docs, I mean, you get a face full of that. <laughs> like, you just go, wow, I never would have thought anybody would do whatever that thing is. Another thing you'd want is a site where users can test out endpoints to see how they work. This is really effective, and it's almost becoming necessary at this point because they're able to form kind of living documentation around it. Yeah, well, and the, and the fact is, is that documents are kind of like pointers and actual proof of what the thing does is no longer a pointer. Like it's dereferenced. You have the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it works way better if you can make that site clean and easy to use, which can be tricky. Although stuff like Swagger makes that easier if you're doing stuff on the web. Another thing you need to do is give integrators as much time as possible before you remove the old versions of something. If there's not a regulatory timeline that forces an update in short order, then you should give clients as long as you can do you know, to, to get their stuff done before you pull the plug on the old version. Now, bear in mind that integrating with your software is not the only thing that, that software does. Um, if you break things for them, they're going to consider that implementation point to be kind of risky and they're not going to want to mess with your stuff as much. They're going to think, okay, let's figure out how to get them out of here. Yeah, I've done that before. I've been on those conversations. Yeah. Uh, What's what's really funny is I was, when I was, I was telling you about talking to this other developer and asking him to look at this, when I was explaining to him why I was asking him to look into it, he was like, well, if they're, .NET stuff is so outdated. Are we sure we even want to use them? I'm like, yeah, that's that's way beyond our pay grade, bro. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, but I'm with you on that because I'm like, yeah, I get where you're going. But yeah, no, that decision is like way above us. Well, it also creates a Dead Sea effect among your users, right? Because your more competent development users probably have a good rapport with their management and can say, hey, this sucks. Let's get rid of it. And they leave. And the ones that don't have that rapport stay. Yeah, that's true. You know, one thing that I have done to do this effectively in other services, and all my stuff is kind of internal microservices at this point. So I'm not like writing to external customers. But what I did was I wrote the new application and I left the old endpoints, like the the API endpoints there. And I just had them convert over so like yep. they they converted and called the new endpoint 
Yeah, your old version is an API gateway to your new version. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that way it could just sit there as long as they need it. And until we made some huge breaking change, it worked. And then that gave them years to update. Yeah. Now, it can be difficult to make changes in your system if you're having to drag an old version along mm-hmm. like that. But one thing that this is really handy for as a development person, you know, team lead, project manager, developer, QA, whatever you happen to be, is this can actually force your team to more thoroughly decouple parts of your app. So if it's really tightly tied, that's probably what's going to cause the break. And so it may force you to actually separate that front end from the back end a little bit better so that you can support that. And by the way, you're probably going to do the same thing on the newer code too. Always be willing to find those little levers when you're working on something to force best practices in places that people wouldn't put them otherwise. Mm -hmm. So the next one is to allow mixed use of versions where possible. And again, I kind of hinted at this with the way that I, I do things when I'm building that. As clients start to use the newer parts of your system, make sure that they can seamlessly use both the old and the new parts of the system in parallel. And that'll make their transition more gradual and it will ease it for them. One of the things that when I was proposing my design ideas for this new this new service, or it's actually rewriting a service that we have, but it's putting a bunch of things together with it. But with my design idea, when I submitted that to the management team, what I said was, hey, look, the way that it's going to be built, we don't have to go change every application that's using the system. We can build this. They can still talk to it because we will have that old version in there. Nothing will change. It'll just, it'll redirect it. It'll take that information, make any changes it needs, and then call the new stuff. And then we can go in one by one and change those applications as we have time to do that. You want to be especially careful about things like authentication, access to various resources, etc. as you will probably need to introduce code to the newer parts of the system to deal with things created in the older parts. You may also be forced to do the reverse. Yeah. So the auth thing is always fun, right? They go, oh, for version three, we're going to this new authentication system, whatever it is. And version two had something else. Well, can I, in the same app, hit version two and version three with the same authentication? Because if I can't, you just put a fault line in my app that makes it hard for me to transition stuff because I can't get to a useful state with a small change. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how many companies will do stuff like that. Yeah. And just massively break things. And it really does a lot of damage. You should also pay close attention to errors because if you start doing stuff like this, you're going to get more of them just because stuff comes in from different ways. But these errors are often really informative about use cases that you didn't realize that you had. So you may see that, oh, hey, they're, you know, they put something in here weird and our newer system makes these assumptions that aren't valid for this, but it was allowed in the old system. Why is that? This is a great way to kind of act as a feeder for why questions for your product manager, your Mm -hmm. product owner. 
So the final tip for backward compatibility is to leverage custom SDKs. If you built a custom SDK for interacting with your software, then you need to be leveraging that during this process. Yeah, you should begin to expose new endpoints as soon as they're available and should start marking things for deprecation as soon as possible. And we talked about this earlier, but this really needs to be kind of hammered home. That's the way the developers are going to find out about your changes because while we're telling you to read docu- documents and documentation and you know follow websites and do all these best practices, on average, you're not going to get developers to do that. You have to communicate in their medium. That's code. Yeah, I mean, if developers did this, on the average, it was the regular practice. We wouldn't be telling you to do this in a podcast. We would just be assuming you did it. Yeah, like we assume you type. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> just on average, that's probably a thing you do at some point during your day. Although there's some people I kind of wonder. Now, the other thing too is to make sure and message your user base to let them know that changes are coming and that keeping their SDK up to date is the best way to catch breaking changes before they become a problem. The idea here is to get them to start doing those updates so they're all in the communication channel before you need the communication channel. Yeah, that makes sense. Because you'll be shocked about how many people will do something like download a NuGet package, pull the DLLs and stuff out, and then just directly reference them from the file system. It's like you used a package manager to get that and then you're referencing it like an idiot. I mean, like you don't want to know how many times I've seen that one. You know, the one of the most frustrating things I've had to deal with, I had to reverse engineer a DLL that one of our junior developers wrote because she and I had been talking about, hey, it'd be really cool if we put a lot of these things that we do in every single app and most of us end up just copying and pasting and making a few changes. If we put that into a NuGet package that we could just pull down and then, or an NPM package for the front end that we could just pull down, you know, from a local resource. So like we started looking into it and she's like, I'm going to try this out and I'm going to like build a DLL. All right, cool. So she did. <laughs> and then she decided to use it in one of the projects to make to see if it would work. What she didn't do was take it out of that project when it went to production. And then she left. Yep. And that DLL is like, where do we find this? Where's the code for it? On a thumb drive on the third floor. Yeah. In a cube. Yeah. Somewhere. So I had to reverse engineer because I knew what everything was doing. But I just had to reverse engineer. What are you passing in? What are you getting out? What's what changes are being made? And then rewrite all of that code into the application because we are making changes in the application because of business need or something. I, I don't know if it's regular code's or, malleable. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, it was just like, and I had to. I asked around. I asked everybody, including her husband. it's always fun when you get a couple that works together and one of them's not there anymore yeah because i've worked with several where the spouse will blame the the the, the, their spouse that's not there anymore for some problem and it's like but you're working from home it's right behind you You are you sure that you want to do this yeah Yeah, that's and you'll hear like you know a faint voice in the background she does it all the time 
(laughs) All right, man. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not only about the marking of the new endpoints and, you know, saying this is obsolete, but you also have to do something like look at your error messages and exceptions you're throwing. Uh, Most languages don't encode that, hey, this function can throw this type of exception. Mm-hmm. Right, even though it's really the return sig- it's a return signature for that function, as far as like looking at it, but there's nothing that specifies that. And so, if you added an exception, you need to note that somewhere. And that's something you know .NET I think does kind of poorly. The basic deal here is you probably can't just get away with generating an open API wrapper to do all this stuff. You're you're going to have to actually do it, do it, um, even though that's very tempting to do otherwise mm-hmm. so guys keeping backward compatibility is a royal pain at best as your software gets more mature and more people integrating with it don't be surprised when you find that you have to spend significant effort and amount of time keeping your code from breaking other people's integrations with your product Once your software is stable and in use, you no longer have the ability to change things at the edge as quickly as you could when you were starting out. However, if you're careful and you plan ahead, you can often significantly reduce the amount of time and effort that are required to be able to make changes to your software that impact other people. And best of all, these best practices can often result in your integration points being more useful to your own team as well. We want to do a thank you and a shout out to uh, Lucas from Level Up Financial Planning for sponsoring this week's episodes. Through his sponsorship, Lucas is helping us achieve our podcasting goals, and I think he'll do the same for you for your financial goals. So definitely check his stuff out at Level Up Financial Planning. Beach, what do you have for us for Tricks of the Trade? At the beginning of the episode, I talked about this past Saturday where I got to be the tech lead director. And something I ran into was the camera techs were taking too long to get the shots. I would call a shot mid-verse that I wanted to do when the chorus hit, and it would be the first line of the chorus before they got there. And I realized after the first song, because I actually did my research. I listened to those songs probably 15 to 20 times over the week beforehand. Um, And then the night before I wrote out, like I took notes and our worship director was out of town. So uh, we had one of the other members of the worship team running, like leading them. And she and I compared notes (laughs) after practice. So it's like, all right, well, how many times are you doing this bridge? How many times are you doing this chorus? That kind of stuff. Where where are you guys dropping out? Where does it it build? Those kind of things. She had like her notes were almost exactly the same as mine, except for better penmanship. I'm just gonna say she has better penmanship than me. Yeah, I was gonna say just about yeah. everyone does. You went to med school. Uh, true that. So uh anyway, I first song, and I'm like, they're not getting to the places I need them to in time. And I realized, like towards the end of that first song, that I had been thinking in terms of me being a camera tech, because that's my 
one of the major roles I have is I'm one of the camera techs. And I was thinking, all right, when the shot is called, how long would it take me to get there? Not thinking, how long does it take for me to call the shot and then for it to go across over the radio to the camera tech? And then for them to react. Yeah. Because the other thing too, if you know the next thing is coming, you as a camera tech probably are anticipating that Mm -hmm. and moving to that position. And the person that you're telling stuff to may not be like that. Well, yeah. And that's, yeah, this is a, that's the big thing there. And so I had to actually change, like I had all these notes on when to call shots and I had to completely change them because I was the time it took me to say the shot. So let's, like I mentioned, we're mid verse. Well, it took me the rest of the verse to call the shot and it took them the first line of the chorus to get the shot. They weren't being slow. It's I didn't take into account the time it took for me to tell them what to do. And and we're working really quickly here. So we had to be like on it. It's like, make the call, do the thing, make the call, do the thing, make the call, do the thing. And they were on it. They were, as soon as I called the shot, they were getting the shot. But it was my call, the time it took for me to make that call. And so I had to make a change there. And the reason I'm telling you guys this is because moving into a leadership role can be daunting. That new role has new and sometimes opposing responsibilities and requirements that you had not been doing before. You know, as a frontline developer, we have the luxury of getting into the weeds or hyper focusing on our one area, like I did when I was a camera tech. Whereas moving up the ladder into a lead or managerial role, one has to look at the bigger picture. Like when I had to think, all right, I need to think two steps ahead, not one. And it's easy to still think in terms of how to get things done at that worker level when you're in management, it takes learning a new skill. But in order to lead those developers, you need to make that skill backward compatible because you have to be able to step back into the mindset of the developer to help them. There is a couple of times where I would call a shot and a camera tech would look at me and, you know, they're not supposed to talk on their cameras because people can hear them out towards the crowd. So they'd look at me like, I don't understand what you're calling. And I had to get in the mindset of the camera tech to understand, all right, what do I need to say to them so they know what I'm, what I want from them? You need to be able to get into the mindset of your workers to work with them. Then you have to leave that to think about things at the organizational level. Like I had to step into the camera two role to tell the tech there the shot to get but then I had to step out of that to call the shot for the next camera once that shot was there and move back and forth. This is quite challenging, especially when you're new to the role. The reason I say all this is sometimes as developers, we can be really harsh on management, especially newer people or people who are just stepping into the role. And I just want to say, guys, try and be lenient with your managers and your lead developers when they may not be thinking in the same vein as you because they have to think at a different level and about different things. And they don't have that luxury of hyper-focusing on this one thing. They have to think about the broad stuff. 
and they have to try and make that backward compatible to be able to communicate with you. And that's pretty much all I've got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live, talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all of our shows and groups by going to CompleteDevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities. Thanks for listening. See you next time.